Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for joining me. Hints and Guesses is a line from T.S. Eliot. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses. And the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood, is incarnation. Such a mysterious and alluring line to me. And a good name for a podcast, Hints and Guesses. That was my wife's idea to name the podcast Hints and Guesses. Um, Today's podcast I'm calling The Immature Hero and the Second Garden. The Immature Hero and the Second Garden. I think, I hope, it's a timely podcast for Holy Week. Holy Week is the week in the Christian calendar between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, the recapitulation of Jesus' final week on earth, his final week in Jerusalem, where he shows up beginning first on, on a donkey, which is a, a nod to Zechariah, where the, where the war horses are no more. And the king comes gentle and riding on a donkey. <clears throat> so um, the story begins there and, and, and culminates in, in Good Friday and the tomb and the Paschal mystery, the, the Passover sacrifice incarnated uh, in human flesh the uh, Christian mystics would say, um, and, and ends with, with resurrection, which is a mysterious, um, non-obvious, <laughs> uh, unanticipated and unlooked-for event. In other words, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, and his mother and the women who, who followed Jesus were not expecting such a thing. The hints and guesses were just that, half understood at best. So um, I'd, like to, I'd like to just reflect on a bit on Holy Week, but I want to come at it from a kind of an unusual angle, something that's been sort of uh, bothering me a bit, nudging me a bit, and it has to do with the, the immature hero, the hero's journey, and what I'm what you'll see in a bit, I'm calling the second garden. So um, I guess the place to start it would, would be a personal place, which is a number of years ago, I don't know, um, shortly after I moved back from uh, Jerusalem. Although it's hard to tell, time is getting bendy uh, the older I get. You could say, oh, you, you just don't remember. Well, that might be true, but it's, it, sequential time is like, well, bendy, that's what I would say. So um, somewhere along my own story journey, I came across the work of Joseph Campbell, and it really started by going to the library and checking out this DVD series that Bill Moyers uh, produced. I think it's called The Power of Myth. He has two, and I get the names confused, but I think, it, I think the DVD series with Bill Moyers is The Power of Myth, and now available on, on Netflix, or at least it was anyway. 
Um, and yes, I went to the library. Remember, remember that place <laughs> where you where you got a little card um, and you checked out books and in my case, DVDs as well. Or I should say, remember DVDs, <laughs> these little silver things that would get scratched. Um, yeah, and and the place where at least I would carry fines until I couldn't handle the shame anymore, and I would avoid the library for months and finally own up, pay my fines, and then check out a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, I checked out these videos, and I found Joseph Campbell as a teacher like very very compelling and disturbing. There was a, there, an immediate attraction and a, an allurement to what he was saying. It reminded me of what, what Abraham Heschel says about a teacher. He says, the, the teacher is the book the student reads. The teacher is the book the student reads. And that's how I felt about Joseph Campbell. Like There was something about the, the way he taught and spoke with a kind of fire, like his, like his head was on fire, his heart was on fire. That's a Celtic image, the head on fire. Um, and, and of course, I found the content interesting as I was beginning to um, live my life in widening circles, to quote from Rilke, moving out across the world, out beyond the confines of Christianity to Judaism and other um, world religions and spiritualities and um, not that I was like a super careful student the way Joseph Campbell was. He was asked once if he meditated, and he said, I underline. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the, as I look back, this DVD series really changed my life. It, it lit a kind of internal fire to keep going, and there was, there was almost a, a mystical quality to the way Joseph Campbell taught and what he was saying. He, what, it wasn't just um, academic comparative religion, which I later went on to study in graduate school. Th there was um, a kind of passionate uh, uh, wonder, I might say, at uncovering and recovering these myths and stories that overlap and interweave into what he called the kind of monomyth, the hero myth. And it's not the only one, by the way. Um, I know mono means one, but, but he was saying there's something very, very compelling about the monomyth of the hero that shows up all over the place. And, and even as I'm thinking of it now, I watched this DVD series again, much closer to the time when I, I ended up leaving my, my job at, um, at Marcel as the, as the teaching pastor there. So it's like the second round worked on me again. So I have been familiar with Joseph Campbell and also his books, which I have, for a number of years. And I've noticed something that kind of hero, um, the hero myth is showing up all over the place in popular culture. And I, I mentioned it probably on this podcast before, but there are schools now that work with the hero myth. There are uh, you know, programs you can sign up for, workshops, writing retreats. I know of people who are making a killing right now, um, helping people craft their business around the, or their idea or their book around the, the arc of the hero. <laughs> 
Um, which, of course, that's exactly what Joseph Campbell meant. He said he was saying, go make lots of money by, by using the, the hero archetype. So it's bothered me a bit, but not enough to dismiss it. Um, and also, if you've noticed how many, how many Hollywood movies have a kind of hero theme in them, hero or heroine, I, I'm saying hero, but I mean um, something beyond gender here. And typically, we think about the hero as someone who like takes on really difficult things, has a couple of minor wounds along the way, heals from them, and is victorious, and everybody praises the hero, and then we want to put a statue up of this person in a park somewhere. Is that what Joseph Campbell had in mind? That's, that's to me, an interesting question. Is that really what he was talking about? And the short answer is no, not really. A couple of years ago on an Animus program, um, Animus Valley Institute in Colorado, where, I, I'm, where I've been doing my guide training work, for the last few years, this is um, Bill Plotkin's place that he he founded. Check out my podcast, Conversation with Him, if you missed it. Uh, anyway, we were having a conversation about the hero archetype. And one of the things that kind of became clear as we were just having a kind of informal discussion around dinner one night um, out in a wild place, I think Anza Borrego, which is in um, Southern California, and there was a kind of general recognition among the group that there, there was maybe an adolescent version of the hero and a more mature version of the hero or, or heroine. And that was a distinction that I, that I found helpful. And then in Bill Plotkin's new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, he makes it clearer, this distinction. And I want to read it to you. Read this little section um, from The Journey of Soul Initiation. Page 135, if you really, <laughs> to, to sound academic. So the context here is about self-sacrifice. And here's the line. Self-sacrifice um, is the core difference between the egocentric early adolescent hero of any chronological age. So self-sacrifice is the core difference between the egocentric early adolescent hero and the mature hero or heroine. Egocentric heroes stride boldly into danger in order to defeat the enemy, save the world, or rescue the child or the damsel in distress. They are usually successful, suffer a few superficial wounds, and are greatly admired and celebrated and emerge from their adventure basically unchanged, other than often a more inflated ego. Mature heroes or heroines, in contrast, descend into the shadowy depths, sacrifice who they have been, including their early adolescent achievements and their desire for more of the same, and, off and offer themselves to the numinous forms and forces of the underworld as raw material to be dismembered and then reconfigured in a way that might enable them to return to their people humbly bearing a never-before-seen gift and contribution to their community's survival, if not its renaissance or evolution. Now, how's that for a sentence? Holy crap. I just want to read the tail end of this again. 
Mature heroes or heroines, in contrast, descend into the shadowy depths, sacrifice who they have been, including their early adolescent achievements and their desire for more of the same, and offer themselves to the numinous forms and forces of the underworld as raw material to be dismembered and then reconfigured in a way that might enable them to return to their people humbly bearing a never-before-seen gift and, contrib and contribute to their community's survival, if not its renaissance or evolution. Mature heroes and heroines, then, are not only willing to die, but know on some level that their psycho-spiritual death is both inevitable and necessary. You see, that's why the use of the hero myth makes me uncomfortable, because that's not what I hear in how it's being used. I hear a very American, Western, often masculine, triumphant, triumphant, um, flag-waving version, which is, according to Plotkin here, an immature version, where one emerges from some difficulties basically unchanged. So what I'm trying to say is the immature hero, no matter what the trial, emerges unchanged on the core level. And worse, might um, emerge inflated. The ego, which I mean here, uh, I'll just put it personally, who I think I am gets strengthened. Well, now I, now I really, not only did I know who I was before, one who charges into battle, but now I'm confirmed in that and inflated in that and need to be praised in that. And I find my success and identity in that. And that's the that's the immature hero, and that's largely what's floating around in popular culture and even in spiritual circles. I think there's even a conflating with words like manifesting, um, as if you can just manifest your own beautiful, heroic destiny. But the monomyth, what Joseph Campbell was really talking about, is the dismemberment, dismantling, and dissolving of the egoic person, of the egoic personality, of who I think I am. And that's not pleasant. And that's not short. That's not a weekend retreat. Okay? That's not having a fire ceremony and just letting go of the old self. And, and then that's it. Away we go. Um, heroically emerged from the underworld of a weekend retreat. Now, I'm not against retreats. Come on, one of mine, please. <laughs> or animuses, or uh, something that you feel particularly drawn to. And it won't be long, I think, before we're able to get back together in this way. At least I hope. And maybe I should even mention something uh, uh, broad here about the way the hero myth might be influencing how we think about coronavirus, like emerging with a few scars but mostly unchanged. Our lifestyle, our values, our habits, our materialism, our extraction economy, our, our systems of, our systemic systems of categorization um, and identity 
don't get challenged. That was a bump in the road, we might say, and we've emerged stronger than ever. Let's wave a flag. See, that's the immature hero. And I am not even saying that the immature hero is bad, okay? It's just, it's a, it too is an archetype, a pattern. Um, and if you look carefully at your own life, you probably have gone through a few <laughs> adolescent heroic um, challenges. And maybe they were good for you as they were good for me. I mean, I had a few early successes. And it's kind of what I needed to build a little self-esteem and an ego and an identity. I'm, I'm, in fact, um, when Marcel first started in 1998 or 99, I can't remember which, um, and within a few short months, I was really, with no skill, the worship leader and or very little skill, <laughs> a kind of garage band approach to worship music. And it was challenging, I would say, embarrassing. And I was um, shameless at, in, in moments. <laughs> and if, if a song went por- poorly in the first couple measures, like usually my fault, I started wrong or, or you know, messed up the chords, I would stop and start again. And people would like, oh my God, what's going on? But it was kind of also enjoyable at the same time. And over the course of four years or so, um, I improved, I w- would say. And the worship team and, and a few friends put out, put out some albums. And, it, and I, that's an early success. And I'm really grateful for that. That's not really a dismantling of my own ego. That's not really a dismemberment. That's a few trials that can be overcome, which I needed and I'm really grateful for. So don't hear me say that the immature hero is bad or wrong. It's just immature. And it's not transformation. It's not really what the Jesus narrative is talking about. It's not really what the sign of Jonah is talking about, a descent and return, uh, a swallowing um, down into the ocean depths, into the abyss, into the numinous darkness to be rearranged, to be turned into soup, like in the cocoon and the tomb and the womb. These are the images. Um, you know, Jesus says you must be born again. And we think, ah, um, not really. I'll just take the concept of being born again and that will be my triumphant victory over other people who are not born again. You say, no, that's not You know, Nicodemus says, must I enter the womb a second time? And my answer mythically is something like, yes, (laughs) you must enter the womb a second time. Or the tomb, the ocean, the abyss, the amniotic uh, fluid of dismemberment. (laughs) Yeah, that's the place. Um, And Joseph Campbell says as much very directly. He says, the hero goes out to slay the dragon, but he or she himself is slayed. You have to forget the somewhat dated language. The hero goes out to slay the dragon, but he himself is slayed. See, do you feel how fundamentally different that is than the way we ordinarily take it? And the reason why it's important, why I think it's important for me to even say this on a podcast is We ought to know a little of what the terrain is like if we're going to follow our own longings and desires for change and transformation. We ought to know what the terrain looks like, the map. We ought to have something of a map. 
And the map I'm suggesting should not look like the immature hero map. And, um, but something that I think involves what we would call a surrender and self-sacrifice. Two very, very old-fashioned words here. That the fundamental difference between the immature hero and the maturing hero is self-sacrifice and surrender. And that is a very, very, very unpopular word right now in the culture. We almost want, abs we want nothing to do with surrender, much less self-sacrifice. I know, you know, there's a little bit of like mask wearing as self-sacrifice, as if that's a great challenge or trial. And I understand, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not against that, I think. Okay, fine. It's a way of um, public solidarity here. Um, but really, self-sacrifice, surrender, surrender to the mystery. See, we're very opposed to what the 12-steppers call surrender to a higher power. You know, the, those of us, uh, or those of you who might be more uh, agnostic or, or atheist, um, there's a whole conversation, by the way, in the 12-step movement. What about those who don't believe in a higher power? But I'm saying it's not about belief in a metaphysical higher power. It's about surrendering to something larger than who you think you are. And if you can't do that, you can't go through what I'm talking about. There, there will not be a descent, a, dis, a, a dismantling, and a return. There will not be a death and resurrection because... To not surrender to a higher power, if we just think mythically for a moment, is to say my ego is just fine the way it is. I am my own higher power. There is nothing higher. There is no force or forces greater than who I think I am. And that's exactly what the immature hero believes, what the ego, egoic persona believes. So there's a lot of wisdom in an open-handed surrender. I, I often think for good reason, that, that those who struggle and through addiction and have made it to a certain extent, in their own words, to the other side, to a certain extent, are further down the road than the rest of us who go around succeeding at what they do, um, thus confirming. So I hope you get, get the gist of what I'm trying to say here. And what's fascinating about Holy Week is the, the, what stands as the very center of the week um, is self-sacrifice, is surrender. Even the word, just to branch out beyond Christianity, even the word Islam means surrender. And see, see how unpalatable that is? Why would we want to surrender to anything? And in doing so, I think we miss the wisdom wisp being whispered in the wind here. That in order to recover and discover a deeper and truer, more soul-oriented, richer, more meaningful, whole existence, maybe what Thomas Merton called the true self, what I might call the truer self, um, the deeper self, Something has to go. And Holy Week is about that. I know in Christian circles, it's often, you know, like on Easter Sunday, people will go around saying, he is risen, he is risen. Like he, external, out there, has a, is ob objectively um, and externally our hero. 
And I suppose I'm not against that, but that's not getting at what Jesus is inviting uh, his followers to undergo. Like he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Today is the day for your own descent and return. Or he says to Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to have to go through this. Um, this isn't about, you know, my personal victory for you to put on, a, on the Christian flag and wave that. We miss the forest for the trees, you know. But sometimes I think by worshiping Jesus, we miss the invitation, you know. We sing songs about it over there and miss the pattern that we're being invited to within. You must be born again. You must descend. The, the, in other words, the immature hero has to die. So let's talk just a bit about, about Holy Week and a couple things I, I want to point out. The first is on the way to Jerusalem, I think it's, I think it's uh, James and John, although I'd have to look that up. You can if you want to be the footnote checker here. I think it's James and John who say, uh, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left? You know, And they're on the way to Jerusalem, so I think there's possibly a, a literalization of what's happening, of what's meant by kingdom here. We can't say for sure, because the Gospels are written in pre-scientific, pre-historically critical academic pre-journalism it's much more mythic and poetic so it's sometimes hard to decipher uh, intentionality and and nuance because it's quite poetic and they say can we sit on your right and left and and maybe they imagine going up to Jerusalem and and Jesus taking his his place his messianic because the Messiah uh, is a kingly image sitting on the throne and and here are James and John sitting on the right and left kind of co-ruling, which is sort of lovely and innocent. And um, there's something I, I, I even, I think it's kind of precious in a way, the way a child might say, hey, can, can, I, uh, can I come along? <laughs> uh, can I like ride with you on your <laughs> throne? Um, and Jesus says, that's not for me. I can't say. That's his answer. It's not for me. Um, and, then, and then he says, can you suffer the things that I'm going to suffer? And they're like, yeah, we can. And, and he sort of leaves it at that, okay, fine. Um, but my right and left, that's not for me to, to say. And what a mysterious and strange response. But I'd like to suggest that the, that the desire here is, reflects a bit of the immature hero. The immature hero would say, can I sit on your right and left? Can I be in your cabinet? You know, can I be in your, in the inner circle? Um, and Jesus says, well, none of your business or my business, but are you willing to come along on the path that I'm walking? Because the path that I'm walking is going to involve suffering. And I think, again, in their sort of naivety, they say, yeah, we can do that. And I think Jesus kind of is like, well, well, let's wait and see what happens. Because if the disciples are really going to follow Jesus in a way they have not followed him up to this point, they're going to have to um, be crucified themselves. And 
their small self, their immature hero, their small ideas of kingdom, their small ideas of Messiah are going to have to be torn to shreds for something else to emerge in its place. And the whole pack, the whole tribe here is about to stumble into Jerusalem where the wheels go, where, where the wheels come off. So this little clue, a hint that, um, that the immature heroic story is not going to happen, which takes us to the garden, what I'm going to call the second garden. So you probably know the story, even if you're not that familiar with the Gospels, or maybe you're not a Christian, you didn't grow up in, uh, around these kind of images. Uh, Jesus goes, uh, the, the night he's arrested, to the Mount of Olives and spends the night praying, which is actually a custom of his, which I love as an image. Um, imagine a, a kind of guru or teacher spending tremendous amount of time alone in wild places beneath the moon and the stars and the cosmos speaking to God. I mean, what an image. And talk about a little clue about um, what the nature of, of the journey with the mystery and the divine is like. It's, there are lonely and long nights, and there's a lot of crying out, and that's what Jesus is doing on the Mount of Olives. And he says these famous lines. First of all, he brings the disciples with him who can't stay awake, which is certainly a metaphor here. Um, they can't stay awake for their, for their own undoing, you know. Maybe the time is not quite right. And, but Jesus stays awake and, and, he, and he prays something like this. Um, Let this cup pass from me. You know, if there's another way, other than I think what he's beginning to intuit, which is things are not going to end well. There's going to be suffering. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried and put on trial as they did with other revolutionaries and zealots, which I think they probably, from a historical point of view, thought Jesus might be up to, kind of leading a, a public rebellion. And, and, and of course, you can't have that. The powers that be can't, can't have um, outliers stirring up crowds of people. And so... Uh, He's, maybe he intuits and, and senses, as he's, as he's been hinting around about with his uh, closest followers, that um, just like the prophets of old, he's going to die in Jerusalem um, in an act of self-sacrifice. And, and um, so he follows this prayer with these famous lines, um, not my will, but yours, not my will, but yours, which... Um, is a very troubling line and gets to the very heart of what I'd like to try to say today, not my will, but yours. There's not another way of passing through this threshold of transformation than what, is, what, what the symbol is suggesting here, uh, not my will, but yours. It's an open-handed surrender to the forces of mystery. Have your way is what it's saying. 
And it's, it's such a paradox because Jesus is expressing his own desire. I don't want to do this, and I want to do this. This is the crucible. This is the prayer. This is the cross. This is the coincidence of opposites. This is both right and left, thief but that believes and thief that doesn't, the upper world of God and the underworld, all you know, the, the image of the cross as, a, as the one that holds poles, and, and that's what Jesus is walking straight into. I don't want this to happen, and I'm open. And this is how, this is the gauntlet uh, or the threshold, uh, the eye of the needle, the narrow road, that all along I think the, that Jesus has been pointing toward to pass through this kind of surrender. And it's only at this point that even who Jesus thinks he is um, can be undone even further. And it's a turning point. After this moment, he's arrested. Um, he greets his arrester, the betrayer, with a kiss. He's put on trial and he mostly stands silent before his accusers. And, and he's put to death with a kind of mocking sign. This is what happens if you claim to be a king in the Roman Empire. And, um, and into the tomb, the underworld, the abyss, as the book of 1 Peter says, he descended into hell, into the deepest kind of unraveling that, this, that we can imagine. Um, that's what happens to Jesus. And there's something, I think, very powerful about the second garden. See, the first garden is about the dawning of consciousness, this is the Adam and Eve story. This is the knowledge of good and evil, the, the, the conscious awakening to our own vulnerability, our own mortality, and our own impermanence. It's the dawning and the awakening of the human consciousness that how we act in the world, who we are in the world, the choices we make in the world can make or unmake the world, can cause um, uh, evil or good, um, that we have that kind of, uh, limited but but obvious power in the world. Um, this is the dawning of the consciousness of good and evil, that we are in fact moral and ethical beings and and we're conscious of that. And it's terrifying and terrible and beautiful. It's both gift and curse. And we can never go back to the garden. That's the story. We're driven out of the first garden and we're kept at bay by an angel with a flaming sword saying you cannot go back to immaturity. You cannot go back to the womb of the original um, amniotic, blissful, unconscious uh, merging. You can't go back there. You're cast east of Eden. As Steinbeck says in Dylan quotes, we're out in the world. And yet, there's a second garden, which I think is what is being imagined here. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
of the olive presses being pressed upon and entering the second garden, the second garden of surrender, where even our first consciousness, knowledge of good and evil, who we think we are in the world, it's Adam and Eve trying to make a name and a place for themselves and raise kids and, and, um, and survive and thrive and put their hand to the plow and um, work for a living, which is part of the curse and blessing of, of Genesis. And yet there is a second garden, which is the dying and the death of that first consciousness into a more awakened state. Into an awakened state where we no longer believe um, that our own egos are, are, is the thing in control, is the king at the center of the universe, is God which is what the immature ego believes. <laughs> Even if it won't say it, that's what it believes, it believes, I am my own God. And that is the thing that has to die, and that is the thing that um, the great traditions of spiritual transformation um, have been trying to illuminate. You must uh, pass through a kind of second garden, a kind of dismantling, um, which is what the tomb image is about. Between Good Friday and Easter is where all the work happens. <laughs> it's where the body is wrapped up like a, like a, like a mummy, like, a, a, like in the cocoon, um, in the tomb, in the darkness, where there's no light, and the mysteries of the spices and the myrrh and the incense and, um, are doing its work. And there's a kind of dissolving that happens and a letting go and a surrender. And I think the largest symbol here that Christianity is illuminating about what's true in the world is that the tomb doesn't have the final say, you know? I get that line from, from my, my friend uh, Rob Bell. He always says that around Easter. I don't know where he got it. Maybe he just made it up. That death doesn't have the final say. And that is what um, Christianity is trying to hold up and invite us into. Um, and it's not just Christianity. I mean, you don't have to be, be a, a technical Christian to pass through this. It's just the way things are, the way transformation is. Into our own tomb and womb and cocoon, we are um, led to. And in that, in that kind of soup, um, something begins to be put back together. And we emerge as something other than what we were before. That's the caterpillar and the butterfly image. That's at the center of um, Bill Plotkin's book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, which I highly recommend. He actually says he got this from the scientist that when the caterpillar is, is in the soupy soup, something called imaginal cells begin to fire, which I just love that phrase, imaginal cells, because that's what it's like. Something we could not yet imagine, it, that is the imagination of mystery and of nature, fires off, and, uh, and a never-before-seen creature begins to uh, come together and reform 
and emerge into the world. And, and that's, Jesus is saying, and this is what, what not only am I passing through as a kind of uh, incarnational archetype of what's ultimately the case in the world, this is also your path. And Holy Week, I think, is a time for us to reflect upon this capacity to stand with open hands toward the mystery of surrender. How might we surrender even further? It's scary. It's vulnerable. Part of us screams, do not do it. Protect yourself at all cost. And for good reason, you know, um, like, what is it, D.H. Lawrence? We would rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather just stay and, <laughs> and in a kind of ruined uh, state than stand open-handed toward the possibility of change because that means we're going to die. Um, and who we think we are is going to die. So what a challenge. What a provocative challenge. And I'm thinking again of... Um, of T.S. Eliot, what kind of posture do we, do we need right now? And I, I'd like to suggest the posture that's needed um, is the posture of humility. I think a most distasteful word to the modern world right now, to our tribal camps of politics and our tribal religious identities. Um, who would want to be humble from humus, from earth? Who wants to be earthy? Who wants to stand that close? Who wants to lay, our, lay their bellies on the earth like the serpent and admit our lowliness? Ah, oh, that's too old-fashioned. We need to, you know, um, build one another's egos up. <laughs> but I think humility is endless. That's T.S. That's Eliot. What does he say? The, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Yeah, that's it. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. That's from the four quartets. And, he, and just to remind us of just how endless humility is, he says, the houses have all gone under the sea. The dancers have all gone under the hill. Everything is impermanent. So that's the time of year we find ourselves in. And I think that's what Holy Week um, reminds us of. Let's not be too quick to turn it into an adolescent, immature, heroic story of some kind of victory that is externalized in the image of Jesus, but rather an internalized invitation to our own dismantling to our own open-handedness, to our own capacity to sit in the garden of darkness and say, not my will but yours. Maybe there is a mystery at work that um, wants to pull us through this passage, this initiatory passage of dismantling and remembering what would it be like to surrender in your own quiet way a little more this week 
to this mystery. Peace. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this podcast with your friends. Thanks to my Patreon supporters for supporting it and making it happen each month. I'm really grateful. Um, Happy Easter. <laughs>